0: pushkin
1: the most innovative companies are going further with t-mobile for business the pga of america is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with ai coaching tools and 5g connected cameras aaa is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics a room upgrade don't wait to make smart financial decisions compare and find smarter credit cards savings accounts and more today at nerdwallet.com reminder credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply NerdWallet, finance smarter before ai can help
2: your business predict demand accelerate growth inform decisions automate tasks reveal insights generate content you have to trust it Introducing Watsonx Governance, helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with Watson X Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM. Let's create.
0: This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. I am joined by comedian Hannah Gatsby. You likely first heard of Hannah with her 2018 special, Nanette. It was a groundbreaking performance, upending the traditional structures of stand-up comedy. The setup, the punchline, the laugh. Instead, Hannah offered a poignant and painful window into her life as a queer woman growing up in Australia. The special, which laid bare past traumas, took everything out of her. She was depleted as a result of reliving the material every night in front of an audience. In turn, at the end of the tour, she vowed to retire. Comedy was not conducive to a healthy life. The humor, she felt, existed at the expense of her own well-being. But then, you know, life happened. The special premiered on Netflix and immediately erupted. It became an international sensation. The New York Times called it the most talked about, written about, shared about comedy act in years. And so, thankfully, she went back on that vow to stop performing and made a return. Here's a clip from her new special, Douglas.
3: I had no plans to make it in America. If you're here because of Nanette, why? <laughs> Had I known just how wildly popular trauma was going to be in the context of comedy, I might have budgeted my shit a bit better. <laughs> <laughs> but I went and put all my trauma eggs into one basket like a fucking idiot, and now here we are! <laughs> when I first started touring here, I was told I should Americanize my language to which I responded, fuck off. (laughs) I mean, I've made some concessions for you. I'm not a monster. Aluminum? Mm Mm-hmm. Why would you say aluminium when you can flirt it? Aluminum? Stop it, America. (laughs) And y'all? I'm taking y'all. I love y'all because y'all is the best, most inclusive, second-person plural pronoun in the English-speaking world. Thank you, the South. What an ally.
0: So I sat with Hannah this week because I wanted to get a sense of where she's at in this pandemic after the unexpected success of her special. We also talk a lot about her autism diagnosis, which she received in 2016. It's a subject in her special Douglas, and one, I'll admit, I didn't know much about. Her humor feels especially right for this moment. There are jokes and laughs, of course, but she's interrogating the need for those jokes and what those laughs signify. Some may call it meta, but I think it's just mindfulness. And her comedy, which drops the pretense and just tries to be honest, no matter what, is going to feel increasingly invaluable as we move forward in this moment. So, until then, here is Hannah (laughs) Gatsby. Anna? Sam. I want to know, how are you doing right now? Genuinely?
4: Yeah, no, I'm all right. I understand what's going on. You know, so any kind of confusion or anxiety or stress that I feel about the world and the future of the world is very easily understood in that it's happening everywhere. The whole world is confused. The whole world is in this moment. So there's a part of that that's kind of understood. In the past, I've, I've experienced anxiety and distress and have been unable to understand why I have all these extreme feelings of distress and anxiety. But this is quite easily sort of understood. Um, you can't do anything about it, but that's fine. Like, it's that's life. Is it comforting in
0: some way that you can immediately pinpoint What's wrong?
4: I've often had a lot of trouble understanding the world. The world doesn't make a great deal of sense to me. And what this pandemic is showing is that the world shouldn't have made a lot of sense to everybody. Everybody should have been as confused as I was all the time. Because, like, this pandemic is really showing us up as far as, like, being an organized organism. We're not. Bees would be all over this.
0: (laughs) It's definitely highlighted our faults. Like, how we're not great at operating in lockstep with one another, and we're not that great at communicating. But I've seen people around me taking stock in a way they weren't before, you know, asking these questions that interrogate their value systems, what matters and what doesn't. Have you felt that?
4: Well, I'm Australian. This taking stock thing is sort of like, Americans have a much better or a much more open way of talking about these things, where... In Australia, particularly sort of my background, it's just like, oh, all right, just get on with it. Most of the comments I'm getting from my friends and family here are just like, poof, what's going on?
0: Ironically enough, I think many people found Nanette and now Douglas two radical acts of public therapy.
4: Yeah, yeah, and extreme honesty, I think, as well. Nanette was certainly designed as kind of an experimental thought therapy for comedians because I'd noticed and there was almost, a, I think, a stupid badge of honour associated with comedies like you've got to be wounded, you've got to be all these things in order to be this sort of clown situation for the good of humanity. Like comedians had this complex where they're like, we say things but other people don't dare to. And I'm like, if you've been on Twitter, people dare to say everything. They're fine. But comedians as a whole aren't a fine group of people. There's so much mental health uh, struggle and, and I wondered openly if that had to be the case. I think most people are like, I struggle, therefore I'm funny. There's a certain amount of truth to that, but I think there's also the converse. Is like I think some of the ways that you are funny compound the struggle. You know, I think there's a certain amount of toxicity in in comedy that stunts growth.
0: I think there was so much toxicity that you made several proclamations that you weren't going to return to it. And on the advertisement of Douglas, it said, back by popular demand, reluctantly. Was it reluctant?
4: Nah, that's just a tagline someone else invented to to give it a nudge. Let's be honest. Like, I don't, I'm very poor at self-promotion. Like, I'm really, a different person would have made a much better grab at the success that followed Nanette, honestly. I was quite frightened by it all. Like, I've done all right, don't get me wrong. But if anything, I've receded from social media and thinking about myself as a public figure. I've just gone, "This this is too much, Social media has become, like I actually find it traumatic, both positive and the volume of, of stuff, of voices, of opinions, of all those things of volume I find completely overwhelming. So I'm very judicious about how and when and what I do online. So all those sorts of things I just leave to other people, other people. Put those taglines on, go and and I say no, yay or nay, and like that's playful. I'm like, yeah, it, it wasn't a reluctant return because I really don't have any other like. My backup plan to comedy was getting a job at my brother's fruit and veg shop. Like that would have been nice for a bit, but I thought, given the success of Nanette, I should have another grab at it, and cause I because of the nature of the success, I could do it on my own terms. It shifted the ground from under me. So it's it's always silly to just stick to your guns if if circumstances change.
0: I had wondered, because you have spoken about the success of the show and how it shook you and how it was unexpected and how even in the creation of it, you were saying goodbye and that you thought it would alienate people to the degree where you just wouldn't even have an audience to keep going. I wonder what the last two years were like for you psychologically.
4: Yeah, I I think while I was performing Nanette, I think I went into some kind of shock, you know, like just a holding pattern of every time I went on stage was incredibly difficult, but also I kind of understood on a level that it was also, to use a very American term, healing. You know, it was that sort of pain for gain kind of idea that, I understood what was happening, but I couldn't really process it. It was too intense. It was a lot. There's a lot of trauma going through every night on stage and other people's as well. Like I knew I was creating some kind of explosion in people's minds and I understood that in the room as it was happening. So... It's so intense and then after it hit Netflix it got even more intense and I got wheeled into this life, like paraded around, you know, and of course at every step of the way I had the yay or nay of it but at a certain point you, you realise you're not driving the car anymore. Someone else is in control. A friend of mine described it, Ashling B, she's a great Irish comic. She described it as like they just give you a toy steering wheel. It looks like you're in charge. But um, really someone else is driving the car. It's like Maggie and the Simpsons. It's like, honk, honk. <laughs> but you're not. Like, you're, and, you know, you have all these meetings. And and I wasn't sort of steeped in the world of L.A. and all the, the mechanisms and, and machinations of Hollywood. It was a real baptism by fire for me and I've never been interested in it either, like honestly. Not in a like rejection way but in a defeatist way. It's just like I'm never going to make it in Hollywood. Look at all those tiny people. I am not a tiny person. And if you want to make it in Hollywood as a, as a not tiny person, I figured you had to be a certain other type of person and I'm not. I'm, I'm fairly low-key I'm quietly spoken. I'm not brash. I just didn't see a space for a person like me. And that's fine. I I was busy in my own little life. But all of a sudden, finding myself there, I was completely unprepared. I'm meeting all these people. I realized in hindsight, I should have known who they were.
0: They didn't give you like a pamphlet being like, all right, so today, Hannah, you're going to meet... Ted Sarandos.
4: (laughs) (laughs) No, it was the other guy. It was the Washington Post Amazon guy. Oh,
0: Jeff Bezos. Yeah, Yeah. that's how
4: bad I am. I forget names. Look, yes, they did. Yes, so you know, I I have my manager with me and a nice little team around me. But there's a certain point at which my brain stops taking on board information in order to survive. I have autism and I get sensory overload, and there's one and two ways that I can go in that sort of space, and one is. Thankfully, not often, Is I, I and I can melt down, like have a meltdown. The other is I just shut down. So I just shut down and, and it's also inside, like I shut, my brain stops taking on information. And I, I've had that happen on stage as well, like if it's a stressful backstage situation, I can't take in what's happening on stage. So, for example, in the middle of my Douglas tour, I popped over to the UK and did a, a benefit a, at the Royal Albert Hall as part of the Guilty Feminist podcast situation. And it was running way over time and there was so many people backstage and everyone I hadn't seen, I knew some people and they hadn't seen me so there's a lot of interaction at a certain point. I stress time, it really stresses me because I don't entirely understand it's in practice. It's, time can be quite rubber for me. But I knew I had to go on stage and I was trying to because I'd been doing my whole show, so as I, was, I was looking at, you know, doing in nearly a hundred minutes on stage to cutting it down to doing ten to fifteen minutes, which is a it's a real shift in gear. It's like going from a marathon runner to a sprinter. So all that's going on. And by the time I got in on stage, and we're talking five thousand people, I did the gig. I walked off unhappy. I was like, that was a terrible gig. I did terribly. And a friend of mine who's my producer was there and they're like, Hannah that's a standing ovation. That's 5,000 people giving a standing ovation. And I'm just like, I can, I could not register that on any level. And that's a shutdown. My Bridges works with me a lot and she's sort of learnt to read that language and can tell when I'm having a great gig, but she knows that I'm having a terrible gig. And so she, we've, we've worked out a language where she can tell me that's what's happened. So I'm able to understand that I didn't have a terrible gig. It just felt like a terrible gig. And during that sort of the six months after Nanette was dropped on Netflix, I kind of felt like I went into a prolonged shutdown state.
0: Do you feel like you've re-emerged?
4: Yeah, the pandemic's actually been really helpful for that because everybody has left me alone. <laughs> it sounds awful, but It is terrible, but also for someone like me, and I think, you know, there's quite a few people with disabilities who are struggling in very, very different ways during the pandemic, and I think that bears mentioning, do you know, there are people who have sort of compromised immune system who are now really, really struggling in this sort of half-shutdown state. There's no way they can safely go back out in the world because people aren't respecting social distancing laws and, and people are saying, oh, that's freedom of my movement. And it's like that it really affects people who don't have that freedom of movement. And I, I don't see a lot of acknowledgement of that.
0: In the last month, you sat down with the New York Times and you said, there's still a lot of anxiety that comes with autism. I can be inadvertently rude and that worries me. I don't want to be. That's why I study people. When did you realize that was a a tendency of yours, that you could be inadvertently rude?
4: Oh, my whole life. Yeah, I don't remember a time not feeling like that. You know, when you're a kid, it's people just laugh at you and go, oh, you're so cute, you're a kid. But you get to a certain age and then they're like, you're being rude, willfully obtuse. Because I think people struggle with me because I, you know, I come across, and I guess I am, to a certain extent, quite intelligent. Why do you say
0: to a certain extent?
4: Well, I mean, there are so many really, really smart people, and I really enjoy their brains, and I don't count myself amongst them. Like, I'm just registering myself in the in the spectrum of intelligence. I'm all right. People struggle with me because they read me as being, you know, intelligent, because I say, you know, I put put together myself well, but then I drop the ball. And I say something really stupid. And what people don't tend to see though is how much work I'm putting into just baseline okay because ultimately what autism is is social dysfunction. Like a lot of the ways people define autism is through our coping mechanisms so young boys, for instance, and this is very broad generalisation um, between the genders with autism, um, there's, there's a lot more happens in the middle than, than the generalisations would um, suggest. But by and large boys tend to retreat into their what we'll call special interests and girls tend to mimic. And, you know, I think that leaves open a lot to say that's A hot mess of nature nurture, what's expected of girls and what's expected of boys, What you know, and also the biological situation. It's just completely understudied at this point. So people with autism are sort of like defined by these behaviours, but a lot of these behaviours are coping mechanisms to distress. Like if we're being antisocial, there's kind of a large... A large part of that is because being social is incredibly distressful. There's a good saying that it's like nobody has autism on their own. It's about how you interact. And it's a very outdated idea of the high functioning autism, because it, it just sort of, it betrays the amount of work people have to do in order to seem like they're base level functioning. And then people say that's high functioning. And this is like, it's exhausting. And we'd rather not. A lot of the reason girls go undiagnosed is because of this mimicry situation so when we're really young and the expectations on us are less and the the nuance of interpersonal relationships are much less pronounced mimicking your peers works
0: right you can get by
4: yeah you can really get by and then you hit uh, middle school say there i think is you know so early teens and you know, shit starts to get real. There's a real complicated, politicised playground politics sort of and that is usually beyond the grasp of, of a girl on the spectrum. And so that's when the world really tends to fall apart for girls. Sadly, that's confused with puberty. So girls don't get diagnosed. They don't get diagnosed with the comorbid situations of anxiety and depression and, you know, just being hormonal. So that's why you see a discrepancy a lot of the times with, with diagnosis. I
0: wondered how being on the spectrum affected how you fell in love.
4: Not knowing I was on the spectrum, I think, had a, a more an effect on how I fell in love because I think because of the m- mimicked You know, so I would just go, oh, this is how people fall in love. But it it doesn't work because you're not, you know, closing the circuit and checking in with how you feel because it's just like a lot of the times it's like this is weird. I actually just want to be on my own. But, uh, you know, relationships have to operate a certain way according to uh, neurotypical evidence and... It, it's actually, I had uh, just a disastrous sequence of relationships throughout my 20s because I could do it to a certain point and then I began to disappoint my partners and also myself because I, I didn't know, first of all, even if I knew how to ask for what I needed, I didn't know how to identify it. It turns out I don't mean, I don't mean much. I'm devastatingly simple. I I am literally... Literally a dog. If you feed water and pet me, I'm all right. A little bit of a walk. Maybe a daily walk. I'm even better, but, you know.
0: Is that what you say when you enter a relationship? Look, me, just a daily walk and that'll be it.
4: Yeah, but I'm trained. You can send me out on my own. You don't have to. On <laughs> <laughs> I know my way around a block. How much do you think
0: that stems from your relationship with your mother because you described her as a feisty woman and in turn as a kid you seemed to believe that confrontation was exhausting and it was exhausting and all of this led to you feeling like disappearing was the easiest option you said in 2018 I was invisible I learned very early on well into my adult life I was easily forgotten in a room which meant I heard, I hear a lot.
4: I don't think it's my mom. Like, I think there's a, there was a strong dynamic in my family because my mom, she's a big personality. My, da- my dad, uh, I'm kind of a, a very, very odd combination of both my parents because my dad is a very quiet man. I barely mention him. And, um, he's ever-present, but I barely mention him because he doesn't do anything. So, you know, it's hard to describe inaction. The dynamic of our family growing up was, I used to believe it was shaped by my mum's personality, but ultimately it was shaped by the the dynamic between my parents. And, you know, my dad being quieter and more reserved and often on the fence, you know, was a frustration for mum. She already had five kids. She didn't also need to be the emotional support for, for an adult human on top of you know five growing individuals. So I see now the stress of that for my mum. But ultimately I see part of my invisibility or my tendency to be invisible was mostly to do with my uh, the function of my autism because I just tried to work out what the hell was going on. And the best way to work out what's going on is to not participate. Can you say more on that? Well, you know, like if you're going to say, use a sports analogy, if you want to work out what's happening in football, you don't play it. You don't just jump in and start playing football if you want to learn about what football is. So, you know, that's how I, I was with life. It was just like I just always, you'll always find me with my, my back to a wall because I don't, because, you know, if there's something happening behind me, I, I need you, you know. Like I'm just overwhelmed. So I'm always clocking, you know, they call it tracking. And that's why I get overwhelmed in new situations because I can get overwhelmed in a room that I go into every day. If someone goes in and moves things around, I, I I just know and I'm clocking and I'm like, every day is a new day and that's why the pandemic has been a little bit of relief for me in that sense because nobody's moving around as much and like people aren't invading a space and they can't come over they can't just pop over and you're not expected to do all these things so it's really positive reduction in my social anxiety
0: (laughs) I'm happy for
3: you
4: what's interesting for me though is that I'm able to you know like what's becoming clear to me is that I have an insight into what more sort of socially neurotypical people must be feeling because I feel like it must be the flip of what I feel when the world's not in shutdown. You know, like, I don't understand and I don't share the same sort of experiences, but I understand what anxiety feels like and it's no good.
0: To bring it to what we were talking about in life post Nanette, there's this line that you've said multiple times about your mother which is she celebrated our successes by the metaphors of failures. (laughs) Yeah. What does that mean? And what did that sound like growing up? You got excited as I was quoting this.
4: Yeah, my mum makes me laugh. She's just really just doesn't want her kids to have big heads. And she's even like onto it with her grandkids now as well. Like she'll have battles with five-year-olds and it's just like, they're five. And I'm looking at it as an adult going, oh my God, you did that to us when we were five. That's not a level playing fit. So, you know, when I was a kid, like, and there's a lot of love in the way my my parents raised us. So this is, um, you know, I say this, you know, I talk about this with a large grain of salt, but, you know, when I was a kid, like I won a a writing award, a creative writing award. And, you know, mum's, tempered that with a reminder that I hadn't made any friends. <laughs> yeah, well, what good is a book if you can't make friends? Like that's a it's a really funny and kind of awful thing, but, you know, it's a funny story. It's not wrong. I think, you know, it probably oversteps the mark, you know, <laughs> into the Badlands. If you are to look at the example of Donald Trump, he could have stood to be sort of not always encouraged. I think there's a push and pull.
0: Hearing you talk about, like, self-esteem or encouragement, I just didn't expect it because it's exactly what, like, 65-year-old men say all the time, is, like, this generation... Is too encouraged?
4: I see it as my generation, not the younger generation. When I'm talking about that, I'm talking about my generation. I think the baby boomers were encouraged too much and I think my generations were encouraged too much. I don't understand older generations piling on younger generations. I've never understood that because ultimately we did that. Like, so if there's something wrong with the younger generation... There's a certain amount of responsibility that the older generations have to take in that. And also the world changes. Like the landscape is so much different just in the last 10 years. I don't actually understand. I wouldn't be able to navigate the world that we're expecting young people to navigate now. And I I just think instead of complaining, there should be a little bit more like, you are right? What can I do to help? There's not a lot of that going on. I think that is the fault of we have a culture where we don't know how to let go. People in power, older people don't know when to go, you know what, it's time I stopped earning all the money. And there's no, it doesn't seem to be a, a terrible lot of active mentoring and shifting power.
0: You want universal term limits uh, regardless of politics, like in life.
4: Yeah, I think it has to, it's not term limits it's got to be cultural. I think we have to foster a sense of like, you know, what's a really good use of my time is younger people. That is a, a good use of an older person's time. And I think we've, we've separated generations to a damaging degree and I blame a lot of that on free market advertising. <laughs> it's just like, well, how can we make more money out of the same product? is create different products for different generations. And in order to do that, you have to make different generations feel like they are different species.
0: I almost think it goes both ways because you'll talk to elderly people and they'll tell you they've never felt less valued.
4: Yeah, but they did it. Like they did it. The older people have been on earth longer. They're to blame. So I'm sorry if you feel sad. But, dude, you built this world. Young people didn't, were not actively involved for nearly as long in the creation of this world, so cutting both ways is not a, it's not a 50-50 balance. Young people did not invent as much as the messes we're living in as older people. There's a certain amount of responsibility that older people have to take in order to help younger people create a better world where older people aren't devalued. Older people actively participated in the world That created a world where people don't care about old people. That's what I think, Sam.
0: (laughs) This is talk easy with Hannah now. (laughs) Look, if I'm going to be steamrolled, I'm happy it's by you. Obviously, since they've spent more time here, they've created more of what here looks like. But I think the larger issue is that the elderly don't feel like they are respected. And so they are clinging to every last bit of power they have. And I I know this just from speaking with so many people on this show that are over 70, is that they'll tell you about the era that they grew up in where they deeply respected and sought to learn from their elders. And I think there is a feeling amongst those above 65 that that is not what's happening now.
3: Why are they blaming young
4: people? (laughs) they created that why are they blaming young people for that
0: i don't know if they are blaming young
4: people but so like just where's the self-reflection there and nobody loves an older person more than me like i think resources need to be put into older people and we need to look after the elderly and have more respect for the elderly but people have to have self-respect in order to foster self-respect Older people need to respect younger people. Like it is, a, it is a cycle. Like it's a give and take. And in order to to feel good. And vice versa. The young people need to respect older people too. Yeah, but how do you do that? You teach them. And how do you teach someone? Is You, you show that behavior. You exhibit that behavior. And so like it, older people just going, well, I won't respect you until you respect me. What's a kid going to do? They're going to mirror that and go, well, I won't respect you until you respect me. It's bullshit. It's mimicry. Yes, and I'm really good at it, so don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's really difficult to break that cycle. Like to give it a very simple example, it's like when you're driving right. and everyone around you is speeding, you know, it's really hard not to speed. Or when someone is angry towards you, it's really hard not to be angry back. It's really hard. But you know what? Older people should be better at it. So if young people are angry, older people have had enough time on the earth to just go. You know what? I can absorb a bit of this. And uh, you know, any point of privilege, you know, means that you really should be able to absorb more. Like I can absorb more bullshit now than I used to be able to because I now have a substantially more privilege than I did three years ago.
0: In some ways, reminds me of the conversations around your special because there was so much talk about how this special is challenging the existing structures of an art form that had been practiced for a long time. And what I found funny about this is that if anyone did more than 10 seconds of research on who you are, And where you come from, they would not be surprised when you first performed at the Raw Comedy Festival. You said, and I quote, I did not think of comedy. This is someone entering a festival, a competition, who did not think of the thing in the title of the competition. Instead, you were thinking about telling a story from the perspective of a homeless person, which is what you were.
4: Yeah, I, I I knew what was funny, but I didn't know how to make other people think it's funny because there was too much of the like too much tragedy in the setup. So I feel like anyone else in my position would have gone. That's really funny, but homeless people don't go to comedy shows. So I was fairly certain that they weren't my audience, so I had to. And also I didn't want to be homeless. I didn't want, like, there's a certain amount of shame in that. What did I hear, hear someone call it a transient lifestyle? What a load of. <laughs> it was on a newscast, someone went missing. They lived a transient lifestyle. I was like, they were on Struggle Street, hush. You know, I did a lot, a lot, a lot of thinking in my early days of comedy of how to explain myself. I was pretty much... All I did was just like, how how can I contextualise myself so people can relax, so then they can laugh. There was a complaint early on in my career. It's like, oh, all she ever does is talk about being a lesbian, and I'm like, do I? Okay. So then I decided to not talk about it for a while, and nobody laughed because they're all looking at me, just going, is she? Is she? She gonna? She got to mention it, doesn't she? And I was like, this is not normal. I wouldn't marry it. Uh, I did a gig up in Queensland. For the butchers' union. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How did the show go?
4: Badly, until I mentioned I was a lesbian. And they're like, oh, that makes sense now. <laughs>
0: the idea that one sits down at a comedy club and at any point the guy sitting there thinks to themselves, yeah, I'm going to marry her.
4: Honestly, they don't think like that, but I think it, it to a certain extent, uh, extent it is like I would or I would not sleep with this woman. I've heard it so many times. It's like the way, you know, in in comedy that the men speak about women, like this is, this is going back like, and it's changed to a certain extent, but like there's a sexualization of women on stage. And if you weren't sexual, then you had to be something else. And I think I found myself in a strange place, like, uh, because I'm quite celebra- <laughs> cerebral, I'm quite cerebral, I'm quite cerebral, so. <laughs> we're keeping all of one another's gaffes
0: in this episode. Oh
4: no, I gaff all the time. It would be, it would be um, insincere if you were to edit, edit out my gaffes. <laughs> well, that was one of the most liberating things about being diagnosed for me is I, I f- really take, I take a lot more joy in my gaffes. I used to feel a lot of burning shame because it would betray, you know, what I was trying to hide, which was that I was really struggling. And and now I just laugh at it because ultimately I'm focused on participating more. I just know that when I go out in the football field now, I'm not playing football. (laughs) I'm just wandering around Uh, while other people play football. But I'm like, you know, an adorable distraction. But I see the game better than people who are actually playing it
0: you said that you understood you were funny early on in your life and of your abilities as a comic or just a funny person in the world. You said, that's it's how I participated in life without participating. So now that you understand the rules of engagement, so to speak within yourself and in the world that you have to live in, have you come to terms with how you participate?
4: Yeah, no, it, but I think that's true of anyone, whether they understand and register it or not. I think that's pretty much what life is, a grand experiment in participation. Um, I'm a lot happier with not being typical. I, if people don't like that I am not always available, then we can't be. I, I'm always going to disappoint them. I was wasting an enormous amount of time maintaining friendships and relationships with people who uh, I was always going to disappoint because eventually I would drop the ball because out of exhaustion. And I'm much happier now because I don't think about it. Because you know, I I I, I participate in different ways. You know. So if you're taking a, you know, birthdays, I I'll never remember a birthday. I'll never. I just don't understand time in the same way that other people do. But I'm generous in other ways. I remember people in other ways, and
3: and I I, I do care
4: about the world and and the people in it in my life a lot. But I have to develop my own language, and I think I'm still I'm still negotiating that.
0: Are you kinder to yourself now than you were before?
4: Oh, yeah, a lot kinder, a lot kinder. I'm very hard on myself a lot. And I I think, you know, that can overstep. But I don't think it's bad to, you know, to challenge yourself a lot. Like I think I have a good set of muscles for that. And I think this time in the world is calling for that. Like I think it's, I think spending most of my life assuming I was wrong, um, most of the time that assumption was incorrect, but the muscle that I would look at things from all angles to see where I was going wrong has meant that, you know, I think I'm less reactive when it comes to say, I don't know, my white privilege being pointed out I'll be like, yeah, no, totes. Totes get that. Yeah, it's all wrong. We've done it wrong.
0: I like on a, on a subject as serious as white privilege that you won't use totally. You'll use totes.
4: It's a very Australian thing. We barely say any words to their full effect. We, we've, we call it Rona. We're, we're in a bit of a Rona pandemic. A Rona pano. We're, we're in isolation. No, we're not. We're in ISO. So this is just a, like a, it's, it's a real Australian thing just sort of like sometimes I have that, that's a reflex I get when I am talking about something seriously. My brain starts to panic and I'm like, I've got to say something funny. Or I need to lighten the moment. That like, is a real reflex. So I was just like talking about white, white privilege and it's like totes. That'll, that'll lighten that, that'll add a bit of, you know, sugar.
0: Why do you have to say something funny?
4: Tension is intolerable and that's, you know, the, the comic impulse. And, and that was one of the hardest things to do with Nanette, like was to let the silence sit. It went against every impulse that I had as a performer and every single s- skill and tool that I had, I knew how to undercut that tension that I'd created in the room and it took everything I had not to, not to break it. Uh, And that was the exhausting part. Like, part of that infuriates me with the negative response I got. Because I mean, most comics should know how hard that is. Like, it's easy, right, to make people laugh when you have a room full of tension. Has this been all right? It's been delightful. I'm worried that you're cramped into a corner of a closet. What did
0: you say earlier about, since I'm recording in a closet, what, what, what did you say?
4: Oh, yeah, you said, I'm in a closet. And I said, oh, yeah, I've been in there.
0: For reference, people listening, that was the second thing Hannah said to me.
4: That goes back to my impulse. Like, there's this delay, you know, because I'm a literal thinker, and there's quite a lot of my humor, which is me just applying my literal brain to a situation. So, and sometimes, you know, I'll say something funny, and, and there's a tiny little lag while I work out why I was just funny. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's funny. I say that. But really what it is is me going literal.
0: I asked you whether this was going all right because in the middle of our conversation here, you said that you have to do so much to make the situation tenable.
4: But this is not a real situation. So what this is is an interview, and there's a give and take – I know that uh, you ask the questions. I answer them. I've done prep, so I get I get all the right thoughts in the front of my thought queue, um, so I'm prepared. Is a very easy way of you know, one person stops talking, the other one starts talking. If I ask you a question, then all of, you know, it's a bare minimum of nice, but it's really not what's going on here, is it? It's all about me. And even if it was the other way around, I'd be fine. It doesn't have to be all around me. But it's just the the parameters of this engagement are so clear that I can relax and I quite enjoy doing this. But if we were to meet for coffee and it's just like we're just having a chat, oh, no, it is so hard. And also because I'm home. Everything around me is familiar. I'm much more comfortable. Whereas like if we were to meet out in the world for a conversation that was not a, a, an interview, I'd be distracted by all the environment. So this is actually really nice. You're not a very difficult person at all to talk to.
0: After Nanette came out, you sat with the New York Times. You were in Los Angeles. The topic of Louis C.K. was brought up. And you said in that moment, that was almost two years ago exactly, I don't want to stop him. It's worth just to see if he does have an audience. If he does have an audience, then I won't be quitting stand-up. Quote me on that. If Louis C.K. finds his audience, I will definitely not quit stand-up because my work here is not done. Did you kind of know in 2018 that you were going to keep going?
4: I mean, as far as that comment's concerned, yes, because the backlash I was receiving from people who adored Louis CK was a strong indication that he still had an audience. And that's fine, but it's not so much that he had an audience and he shouldn't have an audience, but it's just everything that I'm fighting against, which is toxic masculinity, it meant that there's a need for a voice who's, you know, cutting through a bit of that. And more than one voice. We need more than one voice. I can't do this alone. And I'm not. There are plenty of great comics who are, who are, who are speaking up to these ideas and reframing them in a less toxic way. I had a lot, uh, a lot of very violent backlash which suggests to me that Louis was, was going to at least have enough of an audience for a, a new career on the dark web.
0: But that idea of you walking away, I mean, it predates that conversation. I mean, you're, again, in 2017, you sat with the Sydney Morning Herald and you said, I don't think that comedy, if I was going to continue doing it, if being the operative word, if I was going to continue doing it, was going to be healthy for me, ultimately. It was going to suspend me in a permanent state of adolescence.
4: Because I've changed the rules that I engage in. Like I engage in comedy in a very different way than I did pre-Nanette. I feel comfortable in challenging my audience's expectations now, you know, and I lead with that. And what Nanette taught me was that, is that people were hungry for that and you have to be careful not to become self-indulgent, but I'm going to, you know... Next thing I create, I, I it won't probably be the same sort of show as Douglas Orn in it, and they were very different shows. But one thing that will remain the same is I will be, you know, challenging people to sort of challenge their own expectations.
0: Well, I've appreciated you uh, challenging me throughout this conversation. Your work has meant a lot to me. It's meant a lot to some of the people closest in my life. It's been a lot to my family.
4: Ah, thank you so much. I, I, I do like to know that, um, you know, sometimes I can get a bit carried away with the, the intellectual ideas behind what I do, but I'm always, like, the reason I did it is for that impact, and I am constantly uh, relieved to know that it's had a positive impact.
0: Hannah Gatsby, thank
4: you very much. Thanks,
3: mate.
0: And that's our show. Special thanks this week to Daniel Jackson and Court Barrett. Hannah's new special, titled Douglas, is now available to stream on Netflix. To learn more about her, you can visit our site at www.talkeasypod.com. There you'll find a back catalog of episodes with other funny people. Fran Leibovitz, Hasan Minhaj, W. Kamau Bell, Whitney Cummings, Alan Alda, and Randall Park. If you're new to the show and looking for more episodes in this quarantine pandemic time, some of my favorites are with Gloria Steinem, Better O'Rourke, Laura Dern, Dolores Huerta, and Elizabeth Gilbert. You can subscribe to Talk Easy wherever you listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Talk Easy Pod. And if you'd like to join our mailing list, drop me a line, at talkeasypod at gmail.com. This show would not be possible without our team. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our editors are Andre Lynn, Kat Owen, and Eli Weiss. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Our social media is by Kieran Aftab. Our intern is Patrice Lee. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Graphics by Ian Jones. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. Next week is Malcolm Gladwell. Until then, stay safe, everyone.
2: (laughs) Enter now at T-Mobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, m-u-s-o-r-a.com, to start a new musical journey today.